Hello, I'm Gordon Buchanan and welcome to Beneath the Beabub, the conservation and communities podcast from JAMA International. In this series, we're exploring the vital connection between communities and wildlife in conservation projects in Africa and around the world. This time, a story from Zambia. Dr. Rogers Labilo grew up experiencing human-wildlife conflict firsthand. His childhood in rural Zambia has fueled him to put communities at the very heart of conservation initiatives in his work today. He's had an enormous impact on a whole range of conservation projects across Southern Africa, as well as leading research and field work across the region. He has a PhD in Community-Based Natural Resource Management, or CBNRM for short. Today, he's director of CBNRM programs based at the Frankfurt Zoological Society of Zambia and the chair of the Community Leaders Network. Rogers is going to share his personal experience of growing up in a rural village on the outskirts of a national park and from his roots as a farmer's son, becoming part of the wave of change that sees his community and many others benefiting from their own wildlife conservation management today. Thanks for joining me beneath the Beobah. Rogers, it's fantastic to meet you. Whereabouts are you talking to me from today? I'm in Lusaka. Oh, you're the Director of Community-Based Natural Resources Management, or CBNRM. But can you explain what your work involves when it comes to CBNRM? Initially, back home in Zambia, my work as CBNRM involves working with communities. Uh, that includes chiefs, uh, village headmen, also interacting with government uh, departments that are responsible for natural resources, livelihoods, uh, management, and also working with the uh, civil society organizations that are involved, of course, in sustainable natural resources management programs. And so being a leader of Community Leaders Network entails ensuring coordination of CBNRM activities in all the member states to make sure that in each of those countries, community-based natural resources management programs are implemented. Mm -hmm. I've been reading a lot about your work and your life and, and where you started off. And it seems that sort of a big part of your, your life now, or certainly your working life, is as a communicator, a negotiator. You're the sort of that conduit between communities and, and government and policy makers. Um, but before that, you, you worked in the, in the field, is that right? Actually, I started off as, a, as, as someone who grew up in the village, and then I stayed in there, I was brought up in the village, and then I became a member of a community structure as a volunteer in the committee. And then, and then yeah, so I spent most of my time working in the field, and then later, of course, I started rising through the lungs. Even in my adult life, I've continued to speak for the people of my village and, and many other rural communities in, in Zambia and other parts of Southern Africa. Growing up in that sort of type of rural area, you're not just talking about uh, an academic education and schooling. I suppose there was lots of learning that came from, you know, cultural, traditional practices of education for a, ch a child living in rural communities isn't about doing mathematics and, and, and learning a language. No, no, there's a lot to that. Actually, 
learning life outside classroom, uh, learning our cultural practices, you know, learning things like hunting. We didn't need to be in class to learn about how to identify trees, uh, you know, for different purposes, you know, understanding different types of animals and, and, and their behavior and so on. So, I mean, and there's a lot that I actually learned out of that. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and of course, you know, in those times, there wasn't much entertainment in the villages compared to today. So it's either you're at home or you're in the bush, you know, wandering, you know, loving nature and, you know, just having that connection. Yeah. I, it's funny. I think if, if anyone was to ever ask me, what's the most valuable thing that you've learned in life? Certainly it was not any of the things that actually <laughs> I learned in, in school. The most valuable things for me, I think, are things about communities, about people. If you'd think back, you know, across your life, what is the most valuable thing that you've learned? One thing you think this this is sort of really kind of ended up in me being in this position and, and giving that ability to communicate and negotiate. Something that I learned outside school was being around, you know, others working together, some form of cooperation, understanding each other, learning each other. Yeah, I think that's, that whole thing of, of appreciation of others, that's really the kind of the basis of CBNRM and that sort of appreciation that the other people do have views, points of views, do have rights and should have a, an input into how their lives are, are, are kind of led and, and governed. So for you and your experience of CBNRM, it's a term that's fairly new to me. So it must have been a real change when it was introduced and, and your community and your family realized that you actually could have this, this level of involvement and, and somehow this empowerment to, to make decisions that concerned you. Yeah, and, and you're right. I think when, when I started off my, my journey, I think I didn't realize that it would take me to this level. It was evident from, from my peers that I had a heart of providing leadership and I used to describe myself as a rising star even at that very tender age. And when they asked me, I said, why? I said, I would like to see myself being a shining star or a rising star that will be able to encourage my community and that people within my village will be able to say, oh yeah, we have, we have a leader. So even when this concept of, of community-based natural resources management came in, I think it just found some instinct of leadership in me uh, because quickly I understood that if we worked together, you know, having collective direction, having collective decision as a, as a people. We are farmers or we are hunting. But so we had to do, you know, good farming practices. We had to see, even when we went hunting, for instance, we wouldn't want to overhunt, for instance. We would want to hunt things that are within, uh, just for larish. You know, it wasn't so commercial. So Sibinarim was something, of course, that I think was in me, although I didn't see it. But then later in life, I could see that, uh, passion for conservation is really what has been driving my 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 life. Yeah, I think that it sort of takes uh, sort of some people that have that ability, a kind of vision to actually see those opportunities, and in particular, there are opportunities that not not about sort of bettering yourself, but actually bettering your communities. That's kind of what makes a really powerful leader that ability to actually spot how you can help. Was a suspicion in the early days when I suppose because it was people coming from the outside with this concept of community-based natural resource management, where people like say, "Okay, hang on, what's what's going on here? What's this really about?" When Professor Brian Child came to introduce this concept, I remember there was a lot of uh, reservations, especially people didn't believe 
that uh, you can gather together to discuss world life and be able to benefit from it, you know, in that communal setup, because people are used, of course, uh, that I, I remember my parents used to hunt a lot, but when they go to hunt, when they come back, they would distribute the meat to many people in the villages. So, of course, there was that communal sharing of, of things. But you see, this was more academic or, or placatical kind of a program where people initially didn't do. But one good thing is that myself and the other colleague who is late agreed to try this idea. And when we tried the first cash distribution in one of my villages where I was, everybody else wanted to receive cash benefits from wildlife in my area. And so things from there changed. And I think for me, from that day, my life completely changed. And I, and I immediately put myself forward to be a champion of good conservation practices so that people can benefit from the use of these resources in mm-hmm. such a way that is sustainable for future generations. And I think the first thing that I did was to speak to my parents that we need to stop some of these activities that we do, which are unsustainable, because we can collectively as a community benefit from this. And I think my parents were among the first people to hand down their guns. Mm -hmm. And then they wanted also to support what their child was doing. So I think that's how me and many others in my community who took up this, uh, you know, fight uh, managed to raise to be where we are today. Yeah. And I suppose we we spoke with Brian and Shylock uh, in the previous podcast about Campfire. Not every community, not every part of of wild Africa in Zambia, across Africa, is is the same. There's sort of specific resources that can be utilised for your community, your, your village where you grew up and you continue to live. How have livelihoods changed for the people that you live alongside? Yeah, no, I think livelihoods have changed a lot over time because, like I said initially in the early days. Um, it's either you are farming, uh, a bit of subsistence farming, and we had some cash crops like cotton and, of course, maize for staple food. Then hunting was, of course, one of the activities, going to the bush gatherings. There wasn't much civilization as it is now. So over time, people, of course, they've improved in terms of farming methods. People have stopped self-illegal per se, not to the extent in terms of illegal shooting of animals or hunting and so on. They've modernized themselves. They want to have access to basic services like good health, good education, good communication systems, which were not there. People want to have phones now in the villages. You know, people want to have some basic standards. So I think livelihoods have changed a lot over time. And I think people now, they understand things beyond their boundaries. They see things beyond the confines of Zambia. I think they can listen to the radio. They can listen to the news. They can watch television now in the villages, so they're able to see what's happening in the world. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that I've seen across my career of the advance of, of technology around the, the world. And, and more recently, I suppose, in, in parts of, of Africa, somewhere that you might have visited 20 years ago, and there would be, you know, a satellite phone would be the only means of communication. You go back to that same place and you've got... 4G and you can sort of you're connected to the rest of the world and I think in many ways that sort of sort of technology particularly for rural areas that ability to communicate is very is really valuable because it spreads information it spreads knowledge kind of quickly and, and in, in real time there's the traditions of those communities and the knowledge of those communities is sort of the same as it has been in many ways for for centuries so I'd like to talk a little bit about the shift to the national park status 
back in the day when that happened, that must have created some kind of hostility in the local community to those sort of ex- external conservationists. I should say my uncle, the elder brother, my father was one of the first wardens to establish a wildlife camp at Chinzombo in Mfue. I think maybe way back in 1955 or 1954. They used to narrate these stories. So, of course, once the game department was established, the fisheries department and the forest department was established even before we got independence, they were already having those game reserves, which later after independence were confirmed as national parks. There were already hostilities in the sense that communities lost access. And those things became the property of the state, the government. We went through a period where there was now hostility between communities and, and the national parks and the game people. And often sometimes in some villages where people are brutal, they'll beat scouts, they'll beat game guards in those days. I think they were beating them, not because they didn't like them. I think it was the whole idea that you are stopping us from accessing the resource that we need. I think there was that kind of arrangement. And that's why when CBNRM came into reality, that we can collectively work together to look after these resources and benefit. I think the attitude has changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, it's hard for people to understand living kind of as I do in, the, in the, the global north, that we all rely on the natural world and its resources for the air that we breathe and the water we drink and the, the food that we eat. But I suppose in, in rural communities in, in Africa, for just sort of survival, there's a much, much greater reliance on the natural resources. So it must have been a huge shock and a huge deprivation to suddenly say, you cannot go here. There might not have been a physical fence, but there was a boundary where people that had traveled sort of, you know, out from their communities for thousands or hundreds of years, they were no longer able to to do that and harvest the things that they needed, not just food, but things like medicines. Exactly, exactly. People and their environment, they are they are very closely related, especially in the rural setup where there are limited opportunities because everything, the whole life, depended on the use of the forestry and natural resource services. So anything that reduced their ability to access the forest, to access these areas, you know, had a big negative impact on the livelihoods and the upbringing of the people in our area. Mm. And uh, living alongside animals like elephants and buffaloes and, and lions, there's obviously there's a huge impact on people's lives, but in your community, people don't view nature as the, as the enemy. It's something that they embrace. Despite all the nuisance that people can get from elephants and other animal species like buffaloes, people still appreciate them. That's why even when it comes to utilization, they used to utilize it in such a way that they don't destroy them. They wouldn't encourage people to hunt elephants anyhow. And even when it came to hunting buffaloes, there were very few designated or authorized hunters who were good because they didn't want a hunter who would wound a buffalo because then it would become dangerous. And even when you get complaints today, it's because of the inequality in the sharing of benefits that people would show resentment against these wildlife resources. Otherwise, people and nature and wildlife, they see it as a family where there is that interaction. A project that ran in Rwanda where the, it was a CBNRM project and there was money generated from it, but the local people didn't realize that that money that was coming into their community actually came from their own, their own efforts. We had a similar incident in, in Luangwa, where I come from, because in the early days of the 
NORAD funding to South Rwanda National Park to, to get it back to, to where it is today. The people were not informed that I remember uh, my father was one of the Indunas who was signing on some of those imanes, if I remember very well. But you see, they didn't even know that that money was actually coming from the tourism that was being generated from the park. We thought that money was coming from Norway. <laughs> when Professor Child came in, and he said, no, 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 these monies that are coming is actually being generated for those tourists who come to South Wangwa National Park and the hunting that is happening. Immediately, we had that information and we verified it. People's thoughts and attitude immediately started changing. We mm. all became game guards in our own way. We all became scouts. And the unnecessary killing of animals stopped because people were scared that if you are seen eating game meat, then they will report you. Because mm-hmm. we knew that there was something that is coming out of it. Yeah, I suppose somebody could come in, an outsider come into the village and say, okay, we need to protect wildlife, that's a good thing. And they could probably talk for hours and hours and give good, justifiable reasons why wildlife has to be protected. But if that equates to money in your pocket, money that can be spent on health and education in your village, that's when people must sort of clap their hands and say, okay, sign sign me up. But when it comes to CBNRM, projects, for these initiatives to be a success, that, that success has to be measured in, in some way. So how, how do you go about sort of assessing and, and measuring how impactful sort of a scheme is in any given area? So basically later in life, when I became part and parcel of designing several CBNRM projects around the region, one thing that I learned is that if you want CBNRM to succeed, you need to lay very good foundation. You really need to know why you are putting it, why you are setting up this. But And again, it shouldn't really be an imposed idea. But even where it is imposed, they sh- people should appreciate why this kind of an idea is being imposed on them. And then they should assume ownership. And so working with the Professor Child and others, we developed different monitoring tools, especially governance, because governance is one of the most important things in CBNRM. So we developed a community governance tool that we have been using to assess uh, the performance of these community institutions and CBNRM across Southern Africa. Uh, of course, there are other, there are other monitoring tools, including uh, governance uh, uh, monitoring effectiveness uh, tracking tool. Uh, there is a SAGE, you know, site level governance assessment, governance assessment for protected areas. There are all these different, different tools. But I think I find the community, uh, the community governance dashboard being more interactive because it also helps you know, the communities themselves to assess themselves, to understand where they are doing well and where they are not doing well. So this too helps to, to identify governance parameters. For instance, a, are people receiving benefits? Are meetings being held? Who makes decisions? What are the quotas? How much revenue did we generate? So all those becomes governance parameters that we measure in the CBNRM. But of course, there are some challenges. You mentioned earlier on about your education and a lot of that education came from your community, not not sitting behind a school desk. But today in your village, that school that you went to, how have things changed? What's available to a 12-year-old girl sitting in, in a classroom now that wasn't available back then when you were at school? Yeah, I think there's a lot of improvement now. I know that we didn't have a laboratory. We were doing science subjects, but we didn't have a laboratory. They have laboratories now. They have computers, all the modern tools for creative arts. 
many of that investment came out of the resources from the use of, of, of resources. So, so we have schools that at least have better services. They are able to sit around the television, for instance, and understand what happens out there. I'm sure it's not been a, an easy path. What have been the challenges that you've encountered over the course of your career? No, there have been several challenges. Of course, you know, having been brought up in a rural setup with the very, you know, poor family backgrounds, it has been a struggle, of course, to, to get set up, to even be recognized, it's not, not just as a, an illiterate villager, to be appreciated to, to, to a level where people are able to say, okay, fine, this guy grew up in the village, but I think he's able to contribute to a global agenda, to a national agenda. I think it's a great step, but yeah, there's been challenges. There were those setbacks, you know, we used to admire some of our colleagues whose parents, for instance, were doing well, you know, they had money. You know, they had several things that I didn't have. But nevertheless, that didn't bother me because I was ready to fight for my life, to fight for my future, and to fight for the future of the several rural communities. And that's why, with that kind of humble background, I still speak for the people who can't speak for themselves because mm -hmm. I don't want them to experience what I experienced when I was a young person in the village. So for me, I look at myself as a village conservation person. I'm a village boy who is having great passion for nature and development. Yeah. And do you see any other course that you could have taken in your life? It feels that all of this for you, your journey has just been a natural progression, that these abilities, I suppose, that you had as of a rising star in your community, that it was obvious that you were going to become a leader in this way. Initially, I wanted to do law. I had a strong feeling that we needed justice because I thought my people, you know, were not getting necessary justice. There were a lot of things that I didn't like. And I thought being a lawyer will help me do certain things. That didn't happen. I went into conservation field. But nevertheless, I still took up law and I'm still reading it. And so I hope one day I'll be able to combine my dream and other things that I wanted. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That's, I know that you're short of time, but just sort of one, one final question. I'd love to finish by hearing about what's, what's your most positive experience across your life when it comes to CBNRM. If you sort of look back and think that was an amazing day or that was an amazing thing for the village or for the community. The most interesting thing for me was when our chief agreed with us that we should share the resources from wildlife with the people. I think that changed the whole my career because if he did refuse that day, maybe our journey was not going to reach where we are. So I think for me in my CBNRM life was that the local leadership played a greater role. Our chief, and if there are other chiefs out there who are able to, to take such leadership, such a bold decision, I think they will contribute to the greater good of CBNRM in the world. So, so I think for me that was a positive moment where our chief was able against all odds, made a decision in public that I would share wildlife resources with my people. Thank you very much. I'm going to give an inspirational quote from an inspirational man. This quote comes from yourself, Rogers. You said that our bank is our wildlife, our soil, trees, lands. Without that, there is nothing, and we must look after that. And I do agree. <laughs> you agree with yourself. <laughs> yes, I do agree with myself. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been great to speak to you. And please keep up the, the great work. It's great to hear from people with your deep connection with your background and your community and, and, and can help actually make life better for not just people, but for the wildlife around you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Petros is a community member from Luangwa National Park who found his calling through CBNRM. My full name is Amyonda Petros. I'm from uh, Zambia in South Luangwa National Park. When I was 13, I met somebody who used to take me every Sunday. Then he was teaching me how to read and so on. Then I was reading, I was able to read. So that man advised me that, no, you have to go to school. Then I went to school. Even our parents and my mother, they were conservanists. They liked conserving. Even when we were young, they were telling us not to kill any insect. Because during the rain season in, in Zambia, in, especially in the place where I come from, there's a lot of uh, variety species of insects. In 1999, 1998-99, I met a man called Rogers. He was somewhere at Cla by then. He was working with Eloyara DP, which was learned by Brian Child. So he came to the village, to our village. There were some elections. We went to drink some local beer there. Then he advised us to join the Sibenon program. Said, you young men, this is your job. You need to take responsibility. This conserving of wildlife is in your hand and you are the right people can make the right decision. So I accepted. But Glodas was there coming because he was the area club for our chiefdom. He was there encouraging us and strengthening us every now and then. Don't give up, continue. So I joined the Wildlife Conservation Society. That one, it was a very small, and we were working as volunteers in conservation. So we were going around in the village, walking foot by foot, recruiting people. We were training people in conservation farming and the, the importance of wildlife. Then in the fourth year, I was promoted as the senior coordinator, and I was given a motorbike. Then by then, Rogers had left to maybe to South Africa and abroad somewhere. And he left us doing that. The company grew big in our eyes. We were one well, saving visitors, doing everything. The company grew, it went up to Petauke. And in 2008, it even reached the whole Zambia. And we were very proud of it. And I went to my village, there was election again in 2015. By then, the CBN program, it was under siege. The government people were attacking it every now and people had no voice. They were keeping their money, they could spend the whole year not getting their money from the hunting. The changes that I've seen is that the community are coming very strong. Because there have been so many attempts in trying to shut down, even to completely abolish the programs of a community-based organization by the government, even by non-government organizations. Then they're not supporting them at all. Because if it's the government, they feel, you know, these people are taking our lives. You have no right to control, you have no capacity to control. Even some organization, they side with the government, say these people have no, 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 what, no capacity, no whatever. But the people are coming very strong, with a very strong voice, to tell them whosoever is, is trying to stop them that they cannot stop. Nelson Mandela already said that let's have a situation where everyone is equal. For us to be in a village, other people should not see us, it is the case. For us, we know it's a blessing because God has given us a life which gave it to our forefathers, Adam and Eva, that we should live with wildlife and animals. That's why even the issue of wildlife, animal, human conflicts, we do understand it, but it only becomes difficult when we don't get benefit. George also grew up in a wildlife management area in Zambia and explains how the Sandway chiefdom thrived through CBNRM. My name is George Tembo. I come from Zambia. I was born and, and grew up in the eastern part of Zambia, in the West Petaluke game management areas. My family and the standard of living and how it was, it was a little bit of a lot of difficulties because my father didn't have a good job anyway. 
my families had also an opportunity to get hold of job because they didn't have, I mean, qualifications for schools and, and, and the like. So mostly we, we were depending our livelihood from farming and uh, yeah, a bit of livestock keeping and, and the like. I started my education in 2003. I managed to do my grade seven up to the senior level. At some point, they, they, they tried with me at school to give me opportunities to become one of the leaders. All the things I was thinking around was, I need to study, I need to do better in my school. So, so now, how I, I, I joined into leadership, finally, it was amazing. Sandway Chiefdom had a ban of hunting for about 10 years. And you know, because of that, there was a high risk of poaching. The GMO was distracted. There was a lot of encroachment and the like. Now, the funny thing happened in 2017. The Department of National Parks now had thought of, I mean, forming a, a community resources board in that particular area. People from the Department of National Parks and tell them, go at this village and pick George and bring him here. It's unfortunate that we are not seeing him here. That's the right boy who can lead this chiefdom to a certain level. I was grabbed like anything else. That's how I get into this leadership, anyway. <laughs> so I, I get to that, I contested. The first thing I did now was to start finding for funding so that now we've got something to do. We had to open an account using my own pocket money that I was, a little bit of some works I was doing to uplift the, 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 the works of the CRBs. We had to do meetings and lobby and to finally we, were engaged, we engaged the safari operator who came to do hunting in the, in the chiefdom. By the time it was 2017, the chiefdom merely was transformed to something else. People get shocked because I focused on developing the chiefdom and ensuring that resources are well protected. I said, in the first three years, I'll do much of infrastructure because the schools were dilapidated. I'm telling you, it was chaos. So I focused on that. I've learned a lot of things. And now I'm driving the association to a certain level so that at least the whole OCRBs should benefit from what we are, we, we are planning. Luckily, um, I am saying now, in, like for in Sandwich Chiefdom, uh, really my thought of now improving the direct livelihood benefits to my people in the local communities, we've managed to lead that. We're able to give them farming inputs, cash dividends. We're able to do, provide them with hives so they do beekeeping. We're able to give them funding for goat rearing for, for, and, and, and poultry. There are a lot of chicken now that are being, uh, being taken care of. So, so people are able now to do exchange of resources so that at least the livelihoods are being uplifted. Otherwise, we've now reached at that level in Sandwich Chiefdom, and, and I pray that this is the best that I'm now I'm, I'm supposed to see happening across the country in, in most of these areas where resources are, are, are capable of. I'm seeing really the impact of CBNRM. If put into practice, it's beneficial because you allow every person to express the views and you learn a lot of things. We're able to do something that is correct that might be beneficial for both conservation and the live rooms of the local communities. I love that Rogers is still so deeply connected to his village and that he's using his knowledge and experience to mentor the great change makers of the future. It's also incredible to see the, the wider democratic privilege of devolving decision making to communities through conservation not only in representing more voices at a government level, but in personally motivating and empowering individuals living in rural areas and in giving even more gender representation. If you'd like to find out more about Rogers, take a look at the links in the show notes or just visit the website jamainternational.com 
to explore more amazing international collaborations. Make sure you follow or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite app. JAMA International are passionate about conservation and well-being for people and planet and know it's crucial to open positive dialogues and share ideas. If you'd like to share this podcast, please do so with the hashtag beneath the Beabub on social media or maybe just start a conversation with a friend. I'm Gordon Buchanan and you've been listening to Beneath the Beabub. <laughs>